Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Will you ever forget it? The image of LeBron James on his knees fighting back tears after Cleveland's NBA title victory. But it wasn't just a dream for James and his teammates. It was a dream of original Cavs broadcaster and Kirk Gowdy Award winner Joe Tate. I thought of him in that moment, and Joe will take us for a journey from the 1970 Cavs to this week's victory. And he'll share some arena stories, too. Later, the pilgrimage to Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha for over 60 years the site of the College World Series. And Stadium's USA President Mark Bedoran tells us about a new reality, the marriage of stadium tech and virtual reality. It's on our radar this week. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the NHL made it official this week, awarding Las Vegas with an expansion franchise. Brand new T-Mobile Arena will be the home to the league's 31st team. Vegas wins out over Quebec City. That was also vying for an NHL franchise. Commissioner Gary Bettman says a weak Canadian dollar and geography led to the Vegas decision. The board concluded that based on the process that will be used for stocking rosters, the best interest of the league and all teams would be served by limiting the number of incoming clubs to one at this juncture. Other sports are taking note of the big leagues coming to Sin City. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred told the Yes Network. I see Las Vegas as a viable alternative. Um, I would not disqualify it just because of the gambling issue. And NBA Commissioner Adam Silver told Dan Patrick, it's come to a point where the city of more than two million can't be ignored. I mean, it's a market that we've been playing our summer league in. Um, for at least the last 10 years, so we've been there every July. I've been to the new arena, um, and I, I think it's a, it's a great market. And of course, the Oakland Raiders continue discussions on funding for a new dome stadium that could have the silver and black looking at a move to the desert. Well, the Buffalo Bills continue to evaluate their options for a potential new stadium. This week, Bills President Russ Brandon told the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, don't look at the new Minnesota Vikings stadium as a model for Buffalo. Minneapolis-St. Paul has 24 Fortune 500 companies, which is, I think, fourth or fifth in the country, you know, and we have zero. Let's be... Let's focus on who we are. The Bills have played at Ralph Wilson Stadium, formerly Rich Stadium, since 1973. Speaking of the new Vikings Stadium, fans checking out the new venue have varied opinions on the unique architecture of U.S. Bank Stadium. Minnesota Public Radio took a poll. I love it. I think it's visually impactful for the city line, and you don't want another circle dome, you know, again, this is very different than that. I actually think that it's gone a little too far in corners. I'm finding it too pointy. It's kind of like sharp edges, which some people may like, some people may not. I like all the glass. 
I think it looks really sophisticated, and I like how modern it is. From the outside, the new stadium features a unique modern Viking ship look with a number of sharp edges and a steep angular roof. And all is not well in Arlington, Texas, where the Rangers have announced plans to replace Loeb Life Park. An investigative report this week by WFAA-TV says the touted 50-50 public-private partnership for a new Rangers retractable roof stadium is full of holes. The report finds taxpayers, and not the team, will pick up 80% of construction costs, mostly due to millions in tax revenues the team will get in parking tax revenues. Villanova sports economist Rick Eckstein has studied the financial report. My colleague and I who've been studying stadiums, we've never seen this. On the one hand, if it really is a tax and could be used by the municipality, then in essence it's just transferring revenue from the public sector to the private sector. As promised, we will continue to follow this story right here on Stadiums USA. Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. I had a very interesting reaction when I saw the Cleveland Cavaliers win it all. I was uh, not only thinking of LeBron James and, and Irving and all of the great players they had and love of what a great game he played in the 13 fourth quarter points that the Cavaliers held Golden State to. But I was also thinking of the guy who was there at the beginning and who I have listened to for years and kept me updated on the Cavaliers, Joe Tate. He was in the audience for this one, if you will, along with the rest of us. We wanted to invite him on the air and offer him a hearty congratulations. Joe, I I know it had to be uh, an almost indescribable moment. Fortunately, you are a Kurt Gowdy Award winner, so you can probably describe it. What was it like being able to contrast that championship, what it means to where this team was all those years ago, going back to 1970. I've got a, a, a rejoinder that I use on a regular basis now. I am the voice of the ghost of Christmas past, Bill. <laughs> and back in those days, and you know you were there, oh, yeah. there weren't a lot of uh, presents under the tree for the uh, Cavaliers. Now, all of a sudden, this year, the tree is beautiful, it is well-decorated, and the presents are myriad underneath. Uh, but that's not my tree. So uh, I was very happy to see them win it. Uh, I knew that LeBron, if he could muster the troops, and he did, could uh, pull off a three-games-to-one deficit and win it all. This did not affect me to any great degree other than to say I was happy that it happened. Well, you can certainly contrast the way it was at the beginning, and as you well pointed out, Bill Fitch didn't exactly have a full closet going for him when he uh, took over and started to build that thing from scratch. That was not a franchise that was really given a whole lot at the start, was it, Joe? No. In fact, uh, they put the first draft together from bubblegum cards, uh, as uh, Bill Fitch said, assistant <laughs> coach Jim Lessig out to buy as many bubblegum cards uh, that he could find and bring them back. And they spread them out on the bed, made the, uh, their selections off the back of bubblegum cards. And Jeez. Back in those days, Bill and a lot of people might find this hard to believe, 
most teams just had one assistant coach, and oftentimes he did the scouting of uh, future opponents, and therefore uh, the coach was all alone on the bench mm-hmm. uh, in uh, terms of NBA ball games. Anyone who has been to Cleveland or perhaps watched a broadcast out of Cleveland is well aware that a lot of things about the city have changed. And in a way, an event like this helps to shine the light a little bit on on the positives and what's been going on there. What type of an effect can a championship have for a community like Cleveland, which is fighting back? Well, it gives everybody a real boost. Uh, of course, uh, a lot of people are holding their breath with the RNC coming up uh, right around the corner because that is going to bring elements to the community that we don't want and we don't need, but they're going to be there anyway. Mm-hmm. So once we get through the RNC, if there are no real blemishes on the record during that time, then it could be full speed ahead because uh, the NBA championship gave the city of Cleveland uh, the belief that it could do whatever it wanted to do if it worked at it hard enough. Joe, speak a little bit about fans in northeastern Ohio. And, of course, uh, I think many people know that Browns fans are are really something. And, of course, now uh, in the LeBron James era, the uh, Cavaliers have caught that. There's a lot of great college support there as well, as you know, a lot of support uh, in that community. Can you speak to the fan base there? Because it seems to me that's one of the most rabid in sports well it's a blue collar crowd uh, although they're not playing paying uh, blue collar prices to get in to see these games anymore and yeah you know they muster up enough cash to get to see their favorite team play and their favorite players play fortunately both the uh, brown the, well, i'm not sure yeah the browns too for that matter although a lot of the guys are gone But the uh, pro sports teams in Cleveland have players that put themselves into the community and do a lot of very good things in terms of charitable work. That, uh, That helps. That helps a lot. Joe Tate, the great broadcaster of the Cleveland Cavaliers and one of the true greats in the profession. Well, it is time to talk shop once again, and in steps our heavy hitter, Mark Medoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. We remind you that Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information, and as always, we invite you to check it out. Where? At stadiumsusa.com. Mark is visiting with us from Orlando. Now, Mark, the new Sacramento Kings arena, slated to open in October, is going to be using something under the letters VR. And we're going to hear a lot of that in this segment, virtual reality. And that's going to change the way that fans experience the game. Boy, will it. Every time a new venue opens, Mark, in comes a new technology along with it or an upgrade of some kind. Tell us about what the Kings are planning. Teams are looking for that advantage to attract fans to come to the arena versus watching high-definition TV at home, Mm -hmm. which has been sucking fans away. Mm -hmm. The Kings appear to have a really good solution. They are going to have a high-capacity Wi-Fi system similar to your 
your home system in regard to the speed. It's going to be incredibly fast. The um, broadband connection is going to be able to support the entire group of fans in the stadium at one time. Mm -hmm. Now, the virtual reality system that they've designed into this is very complex. It's designed so that you can get the game on your handheld device and see the action as if you were sitting in a courtside seat, as if you were sitting in that $5,000 seat right next to the bench. (laughs) The Kings are using a company named Voke, V-O-K-E. It's a startup VR company that's been experimenting with games uh, before this. They've actually done a couple of games for the LA Clippers. The virtual reality concept puts fans in a seat right there in the action courtside. You can actually select the angle you want to look at. You can see the the replays you'd like to see. It's absolutely incredible. They want them to feel like they're really down in the action, and it takes immense bandwidth to do it. And the Kings have installed that in their stadium. They claim that their internet connection can handle 225,000 Instagram photos per second. (laughs) (laughs) The system has 1,000 Wi-Fi access ports uh, built into the stadium. So Mm -hmm. this is no small uh, system. It is never going to be swamped. They are going to be able to handle the whole thing. And this is the way new arenas are being built. So the Kings are one of the first to have this kind of an immense system They're not going to be the last, I guarantee you. And the VR experiment you could see there won't be the last either, Mark. As a matter of fact, we may see VR even before that, and it'll take place in Milwaukee to help the Bucks sell season tickets for that new arena that I went up and took a look at where that's going to be located just what was about a month ago. Mark, tell us about that. Well, the Bucks have gone high-tech to sell Milwaukee sports fans on their season tickets. They've opened up a 6,000 square foot sales center for prospective ticket buyers. Nothing new about that, of course, but in the sales center, a fan can go in and see a replica of one of the suites and also see uh, some of their stadium seating. They can actually sit in one of the seats uh, as if they were in the stadium. But the cool thing is when they sit down there, they can tell the salespeople where they'd like to be in the arena And they can go to a virtual reality site that will let them see the view from that seat onto the court. So they can actually see the action as if they were sitting in that seat. So it's a pretty cool concept. So next time you go up to Milwaukee, you got to go to that sales center and take a look at that because that's got to be fabulous. The um, concept is called 4D technology, and you're going to be actually looking at that seat as if it were right in the stadium. And it's totally different than walking in and picking one off a seating chart. So uh, I think the Bucks are on the right track with this one. I'll buy you a couple while I'm up there. How's that? Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> Falcons owner Arthur Blank isn't laughing as much as we are right no, now. He, he's not laughing at all. <laughs> no, he has a problem with cost overruns. And when you're building something as expensive as that football stadium he's building, the overruns get to be astronomical, never before seen in stadium construction. Uh, share the grim news with us, will you, Mark? Well, we all under- understand what cost overruns are. You know, a lot of people, you build an addition to your house or a garage or something. And, and the contractor says, oh, I only put 
uh, outlets on this side. If you want outlets on that side, it's an extra 250 bucks. Or, you know, if you want to have mm-hmm. a, an extra light fixture up here, it's an extra $300 or something. We all understand cost overruns, but we don't understand cost overruns like this. <laughs> the Atlanta Stadium under construction is very unique. We've talked about it before. That roof design has never been tried. It's a completely new concept in putting together a retractable roof. But construction costs have soared. They've soared so far over the goalposts, they look like kicking an extra point with the best (laughs) kicker that ever tried. They have already issued just under $200 million in change orders already. $200 million in just change orders, adding to the price. The stadium cost now looks like it's going to be about $1.5 billion versus the $1.2 to $3 they initially estimated. The Falcons are going to come up with the money. Uh, it's not going to cost the taxpayers anything, but um, they aren't even done yet. And there is some question now whether timing for the 2017 season might be a little bit in jeopardy based on some of the changes they've made. So it's going to be a fabulous place. I can't wait to see how the roof works, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know how this is all going to play out uh, as far as time and money goes. Mark, the Rams are in Los Angeles now, which means once again, the city of St. Louis uh, is an orphan. No pro football, just as before with the old St. Louis football Cardinals. And it appears across the state of Missouri, the Kansas City Chiefs see an opportunity here, maybe a chance to fill that void right there underneath the gateway arch. What do they have in mind here? The NFL has said that if the you can connect the dots as far as uh, the marketplaces, you can um, market your, your product there. And they can do that. So the Chiefs are moving toward having their games broadcast in the St. Louis market. Uh, it is a vacant market. It's a good strategy. There's millions of fans there that appreciated NFL football, and they are going to try and work to get something done. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year, not this coming uh, 2016 season, but Uh, Something maybe in the preseason for 2017, you might see a preseason game in St. Louis of the Chiefs. So it's a it's a good strategy and a way to build a fan base across the entire state of Missouri. All right, Mark, each week we look back on some of the significant happenings in stadium and ballpark history. And uh, what's up there for this week? This week in 1916, and I know, Bill, you remember this because you were probably in the press box for this one. I sure was. (laughs) The Cleveland Indians became the first Major League Baseball team to wear numbers on their uniforms. Fans in the stands were having a hard time identifying players. At that time, football and hockey had already experimented with numbers on uniforms. The experiment was tried for a few weeks and then abandoned. Seven years later, the Cardinals tried wearing numbers, but players were ridiculed by fans in the stands. Numbers became the norm in baseball beginning in 1929. In 1958, 15,000 Kansas City Athletics fans, and I'll bet there weren't 15,000 people there knowing the Kansas City Athletics, but uh, (laughs) they scrambled for cover at the Municipal Stadium as a tornado passed directly overhead. Oh, Many in the stands were following weather reports on their little transistor radios. No one was hurt, and after only a 29-minute delay, play was resumed uh, in the game against the Red Sox. Yes. And this week in 1992, Kelly Saunders becomes the second-ever female to work as a public address announcer at a major league ballpark as she is hired by the Orioles. And since then, we've had a number of women work as PA announcers in uh, the major sports. 
And that's it this week for Stadium History. The College World Series is underway in Omaha, Nebraska. We're going to be visiting about one aspect of that with a guy who has spent a good part of his life in Omaha every year at College World Series time. Uh, We know him because he works with us on a number of things. He was the former PR head for the Big 12, Bo Carter, who joins us. Bo, we both just finished a successful run there in Omaha. It was my first time. I was the rookie on the beat, and it sure was great to see it all. For me, the most fascinating part of our visit it was a little side trip to the original Rosenblatt Stadium site, and I was fascinated with what I saw. And uh, I know for you, too, it had to bring back a lot of wonderful memories. It really did, Bill. Or just as we talked about, they've done a lot of good landscaping over there. Uh, it's in the highest point of Omaha, about 1,050 feet, which yeah. makes it one, one of the reasons it was a launching pad for all those years. The amazing thing we talked about, it was actually the home to the College World Series for uh, 61 years, which is the longest the NCAA's ever had a, um, an event at a single site. I think the previous long was 28 years for the Division II football championship in Florence, Alabama. So it's it's just uh, it's a minor miracle that the NCAA and, and uh, college baseball were able to uh, get everything worked out in such a wonderful degree for, for the, all those 61 years. Bo, what's amazing to me is they've created, I, for lack of a better way to describe it, a mini ballpark. It's actually a ballpark that you can play on there, and uh, it brings back memories. It sits on the exact location as the original. It's reduced in size. It's perfect for something like kids playing wiffle ball. There are some outfield seats, and it's the original seat of the uh, ballpark and of course the original stadium was kind of a band-aided <laughs> uh, stadium that was put together piece by piece by piece through the years it really that reminds me a lot of memorial gymnasium in nashville where they had the uh, they started mm-hmm. with the six thousand seat arena there at vanderbilt added decks to make it about nine ninety eight hundred ten thousand then put another another uh, deck on top of it to make it uh wow. fifteen five but same thing with Rosenblatt when they built it in 1950 under the auspices of the famous late mayor Johnny Rosenblatt. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they had a 5,000 seat stadium with all those good old uh, metal uh, chairback seats, which were pretty. You remember those from the old minor league baseball days, Bill? Mm-hmm. Then they expanded it to about a little over 10 or 11,000 in the early 60s, early to middle 60s, as things started catching on. USC, those great teams and. Arizona State with Reggie Jackson, Dave Kingman, and those tremendous teams. Oh, yeah. And then in the 80s, there was a little bit of a push, uh, possibility to uh, – there were rumors that they might take it to Kansas City or Minnesota where they'd have the dome, the uh, HHH dome. So that sent Omaha into a little bit of a tizzy and also into react mode. So they expanded the, mm-hmm. the stadium again to about 18,000. In the early 90s, it was expanded to twenty six, roughly 26,200 with sky boxes, the whole uh, a large sky box and modern press box, the whole thing. So it underwent quite a metamorphosis. Well, one of the things that fascinates me about this is that the original foul poles still retain their original positions, which right now is in the middle of a parking lot. So you can go and look on each side, the left and right field side, and see where the foul poles actually were. They still stand. They're freestanding. They're not attached to anything. And so you can go, and in your mind's eye, you can 
can see how the original ballpark was shaped and the original scoreboard, which is actually quite large, uh, all of that is still intact. The last scoreboard that is there now was remodeled, I think, around 97, 98. But before that, they had a large major league type scoreboard that had been built in the 60s that had just everything on there except the big message boards. But the foul poles give you a, give you a good idea. They have uh, models for uh, first base, third base, and home plate are. Second base has kind of been obliterated. We talked about this by a, a brick memorial where people can actually buy bricks mm-hmm. at some unknown price. It is incredible, isn't it, Bo, that people still come to this site While we were out looking at it, we saw this large bus, and out of the bus went about, what, 20, 30 people? Oh, my goodness, tied into this huge wedding ceremony, these beautiful wedding dresses, and they celebrated a uh, kind of a wedding formal occasion there because uh, the gentleman who was getting married, was a longtime College World Series fan and was actually part of a little foundation from Plano, Texas, of all places, to help people, particularly um, young, underprivileged uh, people, youth, have the opportunity to go and see the game. There is no question there's a tremendous love that still remains for that place. And, Bill, you hit on these were people from uh, Austin and Plano, although they had lived in Austin, in uh, Omaha for part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Gene Jackson Foundation has, has given hundreds of tickets to uh, kids in the 8 to 13 age group. And I'm, I think we shared the same thing. It's uh, a shame they didn't get a chance to see the old park. They would have loved it. As I say, it was my uh, first visit to Omaha. Hopefully, I'll be making many more. Thanks for taking the rookie around and showing him a few things. It was great. Had a wonderful time with it. And uh, you were a good host, Bo. They have done a not really nice job about uh, of preserving a, uh, you know, as, as you know, in the Midwest, too, a lot of they're uh, much thought about preserving history, and they really did a nice job with this. Well, for everybody listening, this should be on your list as something to do. If you get to Omaha, get over to 13th Street, head south, you'll find out there's a tiny little memory of a stadium there and some things to help you piece all of that together. Bo Carter, former PR chief for the Big 12 and one of the nation's true advocates on behalf of college baseball, that is our program for this week. 